Previously on Storyological. <laughs> Let's talk about how many different ways are Radiohead the complete best. We could start with your immortal comment a week before the concert. <laughs> I'm not oh sure God, if I just... should go. What if I get bored? <laughs> what you've got to understand is that Chris is the biggest Radiohead fan. And I, I like a lot of their old stuff. The big hits when they were making actual songs. But I've been less excited about the newer, weirder soundscapes. And so I just kind of ignored them after that. I was like, oh. But it turns out they're fucking rock gods. Update. Ladies and gentlemen, update. Radiohead. <laughs> good at rock and roll. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is Kelly Link's story that was in Strange Horizons uh, in October last year. It's called The Game of Smash and Recovery. I'm going to attempt to summarize it for you all. Um, but well, I mean, as far as Kelly Link's stories go, this one's pretty straightforward. <laughs> you think? I don't know. I still, I still had trouble. Well, I mean, I only mean in terms of, uh, of kind of general thrust like yeah. like the it moves forward yeah it goes in and grows it goes, it goes in pretty in much one, one direction. direction yeah yeah okay i'm gonna i'm gonna summarize it so smash and recovery concerns a young girl called anat and her brother oscar and their strange and violent life on a planet called home it's a world filled with uh unexplored warehouses with large stay out territories with jelly-skinned vampires and mechanical furred creatures called handmaids who do anat's bidding although she's not really sure why. To pass the time, while they're waiting for the parents to come home, Anat and Oscar play games together. And the one that Anat likes most is called Smash and Recovery, which involves hiding true and false markers uh, and then trying to locate and destroy the markers of your opponent. Locate and destroy. Locate and and destroy. destroy. Exterminate! The story reaches its climax when a game of Smash and Recovery ends in Anat finding Oscar's markers and a giant object inside the stay-out territory. It turns out to be a ship. And inside the ship is an item that contains a thing that tells Anat everything she didn't know. And it turns out that what Anat didn't know is that she is the ship and that she has just been trapped inside the body of a child all this time and cut off from herself. That's it. That's my whole summary. But uh, part of... I guess the reason that, that I picked this story and felt so excited about it, it was twofold, really. So firstly, I'm a sucker for brother-sister stories because my relationship with my brother has been one of the most important in my life. And so when I read other authors exploring it, it's always exciting to see how they go about it. Um, and then the second one is that this is Kelly Link playing with the ideas of Ian M. Banks. And I can't think of... A more exciting combination than that you know the idea of ship minds and who they are and what they can be and how they're different from humans and yet also contain so much of the same emotion as well you know what reading kelly link reminds me of sometimes it reminds me of of logic puzzles that i remember solving like in math class or something you know the the logic puzzles where they're like joe's house is green sally's house is blue Joe lives three doors down from Charlie. Charlie's house is red. Why do the aliens pick Charlie to assimilate into their collective? Um, because like, when I'm reading this story, I'm reading things like the things that cause Anat pain cause Oscar to be injured as well. Oscar was intentionally concealing things from her. Anat loves Oscar. Anat hates to lose. And so 
Uh, I love how Kelly Link often writes in declarative sentences. I like the things I just mentioned, and also the handmaids do not tear them into pieces, and that will always need Oscar for two reasons. One, they are they are fantastic anchors in what are often swirls of narrative. And as much as I say they remind me of logic puzzles, Kelly Link's puzzles are designed... She designed logic puzzles that have no solutions. Yeah, those declarative sentences, they... I, I feel about them like they are bricks going into a wall or into a house and you have no idea what the house is like. You have no plans about what the house is going to be, but you're just seeing each brick go in piece after piece and you're trusting that it's going to become something. Right, right. And yeah. then gradually it starts to reveal itself and you're like, oh my God, did Escher make this house? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, yeah, yeah, exactly. It helps build a lot of trust for anything you don't know, because whoever is narrating the story seems to know stuff. Yeah. It might not be stuff that you understand how anyone could know, but you know. I think also it's, like it's clues a, in a mystery, and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. which one of these is a red herring, and which one yeah, of them yeah, yeah. is the reality? Oh, something else that connects to the, the bricks you're talking about is in this story, like, like a lot of Kelly Link stories, there is not a lot of scene description. And very, very few adverbs or adjectives. I feel like most of her power is directed at the characters in the story, even in a story like this, where there are only two or three characters. And all of those sentences, most of those declarative sentences, are about, about what the characters are doing and what they are feeling and how they see the other characters in the story. And on the few occasions, like on Anat's birthday, where she gets like a birthday cake, when she's describing the algae walls, all of the descriptions of scene are delivered as they are being acted on by the characters in the story. Yeah, that that thing about the birthday cake is one of the passages I highlighted to read out because it it talks about the handmaids. So there are two kind of populations of of creatures who live in home as well as Oscar and Anna. Uh, one of them is the vampires and one of them is the handmaids. And Anna doesn't really understand who they are or where they've come from. Um, for Anna's birthday... The handmaids have decorated all the walls of the bucket with hairy, waving clumps of luminous algae. They have made a cake, inedible of course, but quite beautiful, almost the size of Annette herself, and in fact it somewhat resembles Annette, if Annette were a handmaid and not Annette, sleek and armoured and very fast. They have to chase the cake around the room and then hold it until Oscar finds the panel in its side. There are a series of brightly coloured wires, and because it's Annette's birthday, she gets to decide which one to cut. Cut the wrong one, and what will happen? The handmaids seem very excited, but then Annette knows how handmaids think. She locates the second, smaller panel, the one equipped with a simple switch. The cake makes an angry fizzing noise when Annette turns it off. I love that description, that the cake looks like Annette if Annette were a handmaid and not Annette. It's like the handmaids are like... I'm. We're going to make a thing. Yeah. It looks like us, but it's going to look like you, even though it looks like us. It's like when they made Jesus white. <laughs> it looks kind of like Jesus, but now it's white. So it looks yeah, like we're Jesus. We use kind of ourselves and our frame of reference for pretty much everything we do and make. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the vampires, uh-huh. uh, they're singing songs. They're organic. So they're, they're people. They're, they're what we think of as humans, probably, or some kind of sentient organic life that, that is not a ship, or in the case of Oscar some kind of unfortunate robot boy. Uh, oh, he's like a robot, Oliver. His parents are gone. <laughs> poor Oscar. P- 
poor Oscar. Please, sir, can I have another battery? A battery, please. One more battery. I just enjoy the vampires as being kind of human and ridiculously kind of terrifying. Uh, also beautiful. Uh, there was there was a line very early in the story where I was like, oh, Kelly Link is doing something different in this story than she has done before. There's a kind of uncanny beauty in the line where Annette is looking at these vampires who appear to be able to fly. Maybe humans in this story have jetpacks. That is what I decided to believe, even though it's described as a kind of sail-like structure that's allowing them to fly. Maybe it's a jet sail. Anywho, the line is... No one could ever love a vampire, except, perhaps, when a gnat, who long ago lost all fear, watches them go swooping, sail-winged, away and over the horizon, beneath home's scatter of mismatched moons. I was like, oh, it's so pretty. I feel like with with this story, and it was making me think about, about uh, Kelly Link's stories over time, and because we just saw Radiohead, I'm thinking of everything in terms of Radiohead. And when Radiohead first started, a lot of their songs seemed designed to tear apart the notion of songs and yet still function really well as songs. And now their music seems a lot more like music and it feels beautiful and assured and relaxed and often sometimes still kind of scary and uncanny. But there is a freneticness that I associate with early Radiohead that I do not associate with now Radiohead. And it's similar to Kelly Link in that, like, a story like this, there's no pop culture because it is more or less set in some distant future. There's no, there's no narrative kind of eating itself exactly, even though there is mystery and there is this emptiness. The, the narrative is more straightforward. But there is now this uncanny beauty that, that comes through. Yeah, what she retains is is the family idea and the exploration of how families relate to each other and what it feels like when someone keeps secrets from you, right? When when Anna discovers that Oscar has been keeping secrets from her, she she's so hurt and disappointed and so angry with him. And, and those kinds of relationships and revelations feel so true to, you know, real family life. What are people talking about? What are they not telling you? What's... Where are the secrets being kept in the home? Yeah, yeah. And I kept this line with me after I finished the story of how to escape home, much of what was Oscar had to be overridden. And there is much like in the story that we're going to talk about and in a lot of, of Kelly Link's stories, a, a sense of loss and a sense of time that runs through things. And I, and I loved how that note is here in a different way of, 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 in a sense, this is a story of these two children, brother and sister, that have grown up and learn things, secrets from each other and secrets about the world. And now and now it's like they're older and they're further away from each other and further away from who they are, but they've also escaped home and they're out in the universe and maybe, you know, it's kind of sad and distant as it might seem that Annette and Oscar are now different people than they were who don't know each other as well. I allowed myself that sense of hope that now that they're away from home, they will have space and time and the freedom to explore who they might be. And there's something of that near the end of the story where, where the narrator says, one day Oscar will be what he was, even if he cannot be who he was. One day, in fact, Oscar may be quite something. We're so sad them on the ship later on, both clearly severely damaged by having been 
having mines and electronics stuffed inside them and then extracted and they're both wandering around the garden like i guess like alzheimer's patients like old people you're not really the, the sense i got from it although it's not really ever made explicit is that they're wandering around not really in full control of their minds slightly slightly distracted slightly dislocated um and they're they're kind of already in their retirement even though they're young children and it's it's amazing how she's compressed this entire lifetime of a relationship between the two of them. Ah, hmm. oh, Kelly, yeah, yeah. make me sad. Uh, and my pick for this week, an older Kelly Link story, because if you're going to talk about one Kelly Link story, why not talk about two? Uh, that story is Magic for Beginners, the title story of the collection of the same name. That is what a title story means. Uh, <laughs> which was which was her second second collection. Uh, and Magic for Beginners. I'm going to read you the first paragraph, and then I'll then I'll launch into a summary. Fox is a television character, and she isn't dead yet, but she will be soon. She's a character on a television show called The Library. You've never seen the library on TV, but I bet you wish you had. You know, sometimes I wonder if she wrote that paragraph first and everything unspooled from it, or if she went back and at the end of the story wrote, okay, I now know exactly how it starts. Equally likely. Equally likely (laughs) is what I would say. And equally both genius. Right. So a summary. One thing you need to remember, but you almost certainly forget while I'm summarizing the story or while you're reading the story is that all of this is an episode of the library TV show, inside of which there are characters who think about what kind of TV shows TV characters watch and who watch a TV show that is also called The Library. I don't, I don't understand why anyone would find that confusing. I, uh, I, to be fair, I don't, find, I don't find why anyone would not find this incredibly delightful. So the story, such as it is, focuses on a boy named Jeremy and... Like we were talking about in the other story, his home life and the slow disintegration thereof, as entropy does require, scatters out into meaninglessness. All her stories are about entropy. Yeah, that is partly why they seem so true. Her stories are about the second law of thermodynamics. They are a fundamental facet of the universe uh, that she has teased out much in the way of Donnie Darko. Alas, though, Donnie Darko is only itself. It cannot write any more stories. So Jeremy's parents... Uh, one of whom is a horror writer, one of whom is, appropriately enough, a librarian, are having marital difficulties. Jeremy is having growing up difficulties. He likes a girl that he doesn't realize he likes until his best friend, who also likes the girl, asks Jeremy if he likes the girl, and Jeremy is like, oh, maybe I do. But there's another girl that likes Jeremy. Her name is Elizabeth. Later on, they kiss, and Jeremy kind of likes it. <laughs> This is an amazing summary already. Occasionally, I feel like I was put upon this earth to summarize Kelly Link's stories. And then, as it <laughs> happens, one of Jeremy's aunts, great aunt, great great aunt, uh, has died and has left the family a wedding chapel in Las Vegas along with a phone booth. And one of the more magical things that I have ever read, and something that, is, that I remembered years, I haven't read this story for 10 years, but this image stuck in my head of the boy Jeremy when he is feeling uh, desolate about his parents disintegrating and I'm not knowing what to do, he calls the phone booth and a voice answers. A voice is there on the other end of the line. 
that is squeaky and like a rusty hinge and is the voice of the television character, Fox, um, that they have just seen died in this TV show, which, keep in mind, is a TV show that the TV characters are watching in their own TV show, but they don't know it's a TV show inside of a TV show. Anyway, that's... We're getting lost. We're getting lost in ourselves. Uh, and and he, and he continues to call this number to share all of these feelings he can't share with anyone else, even though this fox lady doesn't really ever speak back to him much again. And what stays with me through all of this mess uh, is not that it's a TV show inside of which there's another TV show. It is that there's this boy, Jeremy, and these people around him that are confusing and mysterious to him. And he is finding his own reactions to them to be mysterious. And he's trying to figure it all out. And what he knows is he loves this TV show. That is what he knows. That feeling of all of the crazy shit going on around him that he's trying to figure out was was something I pulled out as being so powerful in here. As being Kelly Link has just kind of made concrete what it is to be going through puberty and finding everyone and everything confusing and weird and oh my God, people have feelings on their insides and maybe some of them aren't saying them, but maybe some of them are saying too many feelings. Like there's this character, Amy, who's a complete blabbermouth. And at one point, Jeremy decides that maybe she's also psychic and can read your thoughts. And he's like, oh, that's the worst, the worst. One of those moments that I love in Kelly Link stories where the narrator who is telling you the story appears to have just realized something in the telling of the story. so I wrote down that reading this story is a little bit like being uh, in a tornado at a fun fair. There's so much going on and so much whipping around Jeremy and his friends as he tries to figure out what's happening in the, with the relationship with his parents and what's happening with his feelings for uh, these two girls that he likes and then also his best mate, Carl. And what the best mate gets a name, but the girls get nothing. Yeah, well, you know, you already named one of them, and I can't remember the other one's name. Talis. Talis. Basically, Tardis. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure her name has nothing to do with time and relative dimensions and space. Time and love and space. That is what Talis means. Oh, come on. Everything in this story is a reference to a TV show. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, so that feeling of being in this multicolored tornado is it's a circus of a tornado it is and that it made me think so much about that feeling of powerlessness when you're a kid and you don't get to decide ever anything really where you go when you go where you sleep when you sleep who you go with who you hang out with you know your parents make all these decisions for you and you don't necessarily understand why or what's happening and as jeremy is just learning that maybe he wants to make some of these decisions for himself the worst thing happens and that his mom decides they're going on a road trip to las vegas to this wedding chapel he's being torn away from everything he knows right right and so it's a chance for growth it's a chance for great pain one of the things that is decided for him it's not that his parents decided for him there is a great description that all of these people that are in his life all of his friends are determined by two things, geographic location and shared love for a TV show, which, let's let's remind ourselves, is a TV show inside of the TV show that we are watching by reading the story, but it's another thing that is outside of Jeremy and all of his friends' control, because the library TV show inside of the library TV show is a pirated show that is never on the same channel. It's sometimes on twice a week, sometimes not on at all. Uh, 
there are always different characters playing the different characters. Oh, sorry, they're always well, always different actors. Technically, that is true because there are <laughs> characters in the. Anyway, there are always different actors playing the different characters. Yeah, you're right. It, it is. It is all of these elements of chaos swirling around, and one of the things I love that is that inside of this chaos, uh, well, two of the things I love really is again declarative sentences. This story is, is full of, of declarative sentences, such as "If Talus is ungoth, then Elizabeth is ballerina goth. Elizabeth's mouth is small; her lips are chapped." Uh, and something else, though, in those declarative sentences is that I love how. In this story in particular, when Kelly Link describes something or when she pulls out a metaphor for something, it is never just a metaphor. It is never just a description. It is within itself its own story. So like there's this one moment where Talis is making a sandwich. <laughs> By the way, um, that, that sentence just brought me so much to light because I realized when I said Talis is making a sandwich, there is a, a, a reference to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy later on in the story. Yeah. And now I'm like... Is this story both a love letter to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? <laughs> what an amazing combination. Because, yeah, let's just run with it for a second. There, there are only two writers that when I read, I sometimes realize uh, a couple of things. One, these people shaped my mind and the way I write, and I often forget that they're the ones who did it until I go back and read them and go, oh, that's where I stole that. Um, and two, the father of Jeremy is describing how to steal things. He says, you just do it. You do it like you're not really doing anything at all. You do it while you're thinking about something else and you forget that you're doing it. And I thought, oh my God, that is the description of flying in Hatchacker's Guide to the Galaxy because the whole point is Arthur needs to throw himself at the ground and miss by being distracted. It's also a good description of writing. Anyway, mm-hmm. back when Talus was making a sandwich earlier in the sentence, there is something dreamlike about the way that she makes a sandwich as if she is really making something that isn't a sandwich at all as if she's making something far more meaningful and mysterious, or as if soon he will wake up and realize that there are no such thing as sandwiches. And that's what I mean, that that you could describe her as being dreamlike. There's so many ways you could say that the way she's making sandwiches is weird. But those series of sentences now open up a whole other world and story that I love both because it just makes me happy, but also because it's a subtle reminder that, to a certain extent, Jeremy is in a dream because he's in a tv show she feels she feels every word and every sentence with so much potential energy like if you let go of it it will it will roll down the hill getting faster and faster and everything and be out of control mm. but she's not she's in control she's got she's got everything but but that power and that energy is there and ready to roll the the control and the power there is um ebert wrote this review of a of an astaire and rogers movie uh, I don't remember which one. Let's say... They're all essentially the same. Swing time. About how when he watches those people up there dancing, it reminds him of when he watches like an Olympic athlete and he feels like he's seeing a human being push their, their physical body to like the limits of possibility. And there's such grace and beauty in seeing this. And I, I was reminded of that when I was when I was reading this story about how when I read a Kelly Link story, she is in so much control but the leaps of fancy and imagination are so great and so muscular that I feel like that. Like I'm feeling, I feel like I'm seeing an athlete in top form in such a way mm-hmm. that I am both incredibly exhilarated and also this happy sadness of like, this is amazing. This isn't real. This is amazing, but it's not real. She's doing as much as she can. She'll never be able to make it actually real, but, but it's there. I want to read a little section that, 
that your uh, description made me think of. Jeremy's mother is an orphan. Jeremy's father claims that she was raised by feral silent film stars, and it's true. She looks like a heroine out of a Harold Lloyd movie. Readers, Chris is, is pointing at Emma, like, <laughs> like giving snaps, like, mm, mm. That's a good she, one. She has an appealingly, appealingly disheveled look to her, as if someone has either just tied or untied her from a set of train tracks. Uh, does it get any more Linkian than that? paragraph introduction of somebody or, or I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give you another paragraph as well where she's totally totally out of control except that she's not in one episode of the library everyone was invisible you couldn't see the actors you could only see the books and the bookshelves and the study carols on the fifth floor where the coin operated wizards come to flirt and practice their spells invisible forbidden books were fighting invisible pirate magicians and the pirate magicians were fighting fox and her friends who were also invisible the fight was clumsy and full of deadly accidents. You could hear them fighting. Shelves were overturned. Books were thrown. Invisible people tripped over invisible dead bodies. But you didn't find out who died until the next episode. Amazing. Um, so n- along with the TV show, The Library, that they watch, the other source of stories in this, stories inside this story is Jeremy's dad and the weird horror books he writes about spiders oh chris is making spider fingers at me it's weird and scary jeremy talks a lot about these books and what they mean and his father's relationship with the writing of them and it made me it made me think about how on one level this story is about how you you can hide in other people's stories right because the story opens with jeremy trying to avoid talking to his mother and one of the ways he does that is through watching tv through watching this the this show the library right and when he calls fox later calls the phone booth he's doing the same thing he is he is giving himself to the tv show and his dad does the same thing right he has this special writing room where you're not really allowed to disturb him where he goes off to create these stories that he that he hides inside but as well as being places to hide, this story flips that on on its head and it points out that stories are also a way of connecting with people, right? Because Jeremy has these friends that he only hangs out with because they're all massive fans of the library. They have a party where everybody dresses up as characters of the library. His mum's a librarian and they watch it together and they talk together about what the show means. And I thought how how perfect it is that a story can do that thing you know your your guy on the podcast on belief said the other morning that <laughs> a real being. a real deep truth mm. is both true and the opposite is true as well stories are places both to hide but also to connect a place to hide and a place to find yourself and maybe other people as well so it's something that is in this story uh is one of the reasons why i picked it that is that is loudest in this story, but is in a, in a lot of Kelly Link stories, that her fictions are made of fictions. That, like an old Gothic novel, uh, so many of her stories seem as though they begin with somebody finding a manuscript and then saying, <laughs> now I'm going to tell you the story. Except like in a story like this, it is though somebody found a Gothic manuscript and then started reading it to you, inside of which those people in the manuscript also found a manuscript that also had the same name as the first one and then they're reading themselves and it's just it's it's like she's framing reality as a dream and in doing so she can approach a level of realism that somebody beginning at realism never quite can because they can never capture the the kind of contradictory nature the the dualness of the fact that we are who we are but we're also dreams of who we are Yeah, cause and effect right she 
she seems to have she seems to have deconstructed cause and effect because of all the weird stuff that's going on and yet you have very strong sense of cause and effect in the story as well like like the fact that jeremy's dad is really mean about money and so gets anxious if you if anybody takes a long shower and so jeremy showers at other people's houses and that's a thing and they his friends pretend not to mind that he's showering in their houses and and so you do get this very strong emotional cause and effect whilst reality flies around right yeah yeah the the emotions have consequences reality is an enduring mess of meaninglessness but our emotions have consequences and a logic to them in the way they inflict themselves on others and that is that is that muscularness that is like the olympic level control of throwing yourself around the room but somehow looking beautiful while you do it the only thing I was going to also say is that the story is called Magic for Beginners. And there is a moment in the story where when the boy Jeremy uh, says something about wanting Fox to be real while she's in the phone booth talking to him, she says real and sounds amused. Like what a ridiculous <laughs> concept. And it, and it reminded me in that moment and in the form of the story of when we were talking about uh, Nick Wood's story. Thunderways Tokoloshi. Right, of that because this is a story about stories and about growing up and about about learning how to navigate that magic of stories and reality and how they occupy the same space. Thanks for listening, readers. As always, we have probably not managed to uh, cover everything in these stories or Kelly Link's back catalogue. So you can let us know your favourite Kelly Link stories. Or uh, about any other stories you've been enjoying or, this or week. Or your least favorite Kelly Link stories. You could let us know that. I mean, be you sure could. to I'm Be sure to tag Kelly Link in that. In that. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like OMG, it's Tom York. And logical. Like going to see Radiohead if they're in your town. <laughs> yes. Come on. None of this. Will I be bored? Are they actual musicians or are they just fucking around up there? What are they doing with their lives? I tell you what they're doing. They're saving humankind. Yes, they are. Of course, you can follow Emma on Twitter at E.G. Kosh, which is spelled. <laughs> you can follow him on Twitter at Kuvols. If you don't know how to spell Kuvols by now, go back and listen to a back episode. And if you love the podcast, please, readers, look us up on iTunes and leave us some of your love there in the shape of a review. And of course, for extensive show notes that have received rave reviews on the <laughs> iTunes yeah. and, and appropriate gifts. And I'm sure links to every single uh, video of Radiohead's gigs in London this week. Sure, yeah. And, and for links to the amazing videos taken by an amazing person we met at the concert and then got to enjoy it with because that's the best part of going to concerts and standing in line for four hours is you meet awesome people who also think it is a good idea to go and stand in line for four hours and to subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter. You can find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com See you next week. Happy reading. For a minute there I lost myself I lost myself